0: This is 15 Minute History, a podcast for educators, students, and history buffs featuring the minds and talents of the University of Texas at Austin. 15 Minute History is a partnership of not even past and hemispheres in the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin. I'm Chris Rose with Hemispheres, and today our guest in the studio is my co-host, Joan Neuberger, editor of Not Even Past, and professor of Russian history in the Department of History here at the University of Texas at Austin. Today's conversation is going to revolve around World History Standard Number 10, The Student Understands the Causes and Impact of World War One which asks the students to identify the causes of the February and October revolutions of 1917 in Russia. So my first question for Joe Newberger is, in a nutshell, what is the difference between the February and October revolutions?
1: Well, Chris, the Russian revolution that brought communism to Russia and its empire in 1917 actually occurred in two stages. In February 1917, Tsar Nicholas II was overthrown, and a liberal democratic government came to power. Then in October of that year, that government was overthrown by an extreme socialist party that later became the Communist Party.
0: So then what led to the February Revolution?
1: Uh, Often major historical events come about because of a combination of long-term and short-term causes. And in this case, there's a long-term cause, a short-term cause, and a kind of medium cause. Let me start with the long-term costs. Uh, the, one of the most important things to know about Russia is that it was overwhelmingly an agricultural country with an overwhelmingly peasant population. For all of its history before the 20th century, 80 to 95 percent of the population were poor peasants. That is, farmers just barely scratching a living from the land. For most of that history, between 1649 and 1861, the majority of those peasants were serfs. That means that they lived like slaves on land owned by noblemen, and most of the peasants lived in deep poverty. Even after serfdom was abolished in 1861, around the same time that the U.S. slaves were emancipated, their poverty hardly lifted. For more than a century before 1917, the difficult situation that the peasants lived in won sympathy and support from liberal members of the elite. This contrasted with the peasants' treatment by the government, which seemed indifferent to the poverty in which peasants lived. Increasing numbers of educated society became angry with the czarist government's indifference or inability to address the problems of peasant poverty. The educated elites saw itself as educated, humane, civilized Europeans. In fact, they saw themselves as the conscience of the country. And they began to think of Rush- that Russia's poverty was preventing Russia from truly becoming a civilized European nation. Gradually, educated society organized itself into political parties, which were illegal at the time. And across the political spectrum, most political parties called both for the alleviation of poverty and for a voice in government. And that leads to the medium-term cause. Which was? That was autocracy. The Tsarist government was a centralized, autocratic government. That means that all political power was in the hands of the Tsar and his closest appointed advisors. There were advantages to autocracy for a huge and far-flung empire like Russia, with its over 120 ethnic groups. But in the 19th century, a significant minority of the Russian population began to call for a voice in government. People thought that educated people, people who knew what was going on in those far-flung regions, people who had contact with specialists in other countries, should contribute to making government policy. Like 19th century liberal Democrats in other countries, the Russians were idealists. That is, they believed that they could improve society by applying modern ideas to produce modern policies in agriculture, commerce, education, culture, justice, military affairs, and so on. Many liberal Democrats came from non-Russian regions of the empire. There were Tatars, Ukrainians, Armenians, Jews, many other people who either wanted greater rights for non-Russian people, or they wanted independence altogether from the empire. In central Russia, though, they called for government reform primarily because they believed that the government was mishandling or not handling at all the economic and cultural problems that Russia faced as it competed with Western European nations in the second half of the 19th century. Some people were so disheartened by peasant poverty on the one hand and government indifference on the other that they became socialists and they wanted to overthrow the Tsar and create small cooperative communities in which wealth would be equally divided. By 1900, there were political parties ranging from far-right defenders of autocracy and Russian power over all other ethnicities to far-left revolutionaries calling for the overthrow of the government. The most powerful opposition parties, though, were neither of the extremes, but were in the middle, liberal Democrats, who wanted a constitutional democracy. That is, they wanted democratic elections to a national parliament and they wanted constitutionally guaranteed rights for everybody. The conflicts between these parties, and between all of these parties in the government, came to a head a dozen years before 1917. In 1905, a group of St. Petersburg factory workers, decisively anti-revolutionary, in fact, they were led by a priest, Father Gapon. Together they wrote a petition to the Tsar, They were asking for better working conditions and better living conditions, and they were asking for their bosses and for the government to respect them as human beings. They decided to present the petition to the Tsar personally, and they chose a cold Sunday in January to walk from all sides of the city to the Winter Palace in the middle of the city where they expected the Tsar to be.
0: And how did the Tsar respond?
1: He refused to meet with them. He believed that most of the people loved him, but that these demonstrators, with their humble petition, were some kind of wild-eyed radicals, as he called them. So he left the city for a suburban palace, and he left it in the hands of his chief military officer, with orders to meet the peaceful, unarmed, impoverished workers with bullets. By the end of the day, hundreds of men and women were left bleeding in the snow. The outcry over this inhuman massacre sparked the revolutionary movement that united all dissenting voices in society, and eventually later culminated in 1917.
0: So what circumstances came to a head in 1917? Why did the revolutionary movement pause until then?
1: The 1905 revolution was successful in bringing a constitutional monarchy to Russia, but the Tsar never reconciled himself. Nicholas never uh, was comfortable ruling with a constitution. And the government violently stamped out the revolutionary movement itself, or at least sent it into hiding over the next decade. But the outbreak of World War I brought all that discontent to the surface again. Even before the war, urban workers all over the Russian Empire had become increasingly radical. But the war brought the government's incompetence and the people's grievances into sharper relief. The first months of the war were a disaster for Russia, Undersupplied peasants and workers were sent to the front without boots and even without weapons. They had to wait until their own comrades were killed in order to pick up their guns to defend themselves. You can imagine what this did for the morale of the troops. This was an unpopular war fought for no particular reason that ordinary people could understand. Hunger immediately began to increase. Inflation was through the roof. Prices of bread multiplied five times and then 10 times until bread itself became scarce. But in Russia, unlike in democratic countries in Western Europe, the czar would not allow people to organize philanthropic groups or associations to help with food distribution or anything else for that matter. The government requisitioned food and grain and supplies. That meant that they basically stole those things from peasants to feed the troops. Leaders of prominent political parties began to call for an end to autocracy, though they didn't want to see the Tsar altogether overthrown. They wanted to see autocracy turned into a real constitutional monarchy. And people on the street began calling for an end to the war.
0: So as we know from history, that eventually the monarchy did end, even though, according to what you're saying, not everybody wanted that to be the case at the time. So what changed?
1: Well, Nicholas really sealed his doom when he tried to escape the turmoil on the streets of his unhappy population in St. Petersburg and head for the front to administer the war directly. His generals didn't want him there and uh, reluctantly agreed with politicians who began calling for Nicholas to abdicate his throne. On February 23rd, 1917, Groups of cold, weary women standing in line to buy bread began to grumble, as they had for months, about the incompetence of the government. And as they mingled with unemployed workers, large numbers of soldiers who were garrisoned in the city, and the soldiers at this point were really, as they called them, just peasants in uniform. They were raw recruits recently brought in from all over the country, uh, not really loyal to the army yet. Uh, the women began mingling with unemployed, these unemployed workers and with soldiers, and the grumbling turned to radical demonstrations as almost the whole city turned out on the streets and began calling for an end to the war and then began calling for an end to autocracy altogether. When Nicholas called for troops to shoot the demonstrators, the troops refused, further inflaming the crowds, and finally Nicholas was forced to abdicate. The 300-year-old Romanov dynasty and the autocratic form of government was at an end. Hatred of the deposed dynasty led to the immediate destruction of all symbols of the autocracy in all the major cities of the empire. Double-headed imperial eagles, monuments to previous czars and military rulers, imperial flags, portraits of the czar and his family were thrown into big public bonfires. One observer remembered, that after February, it seemed as if, quote, day and night, a never-ending disorderly meeting went on across the entire country. In the course of a few months, Russia spoke out about everything it had been silent about for centuries, end quote. But speech is cheap. As the new government struggled into existence, stability was hard to come by. It turns out to be much easier to destroy a bad government than to build a good one in its wake, as we've seen repeatedly, In the past decade. The war continued and everyday life was still difficult, leading to the kind of chaotic conditions that would bring extreme parties to the fore on both the left and the right. And before they knew it, the new provisional government that came into power in February would itself be overthrown, tossed into, as one Bolshevik leader put it, the dustbin of history. But that's the subject for another podcast about the October Revolution.
0: Well we'd like to thank our guest today, Joan Newberger, editor of Not Even Past, and Professor of Russian History in the Department of History here at UT Austin. Um, as Joan mentioned, we will be talking about the causes of the October Revolution in an upcoming episode. We'll see you next time. If you have a suggestion for a topic you'd like to have us talk about on an upcoming episode of 15 minute history, go to our website blogs.utexas.edu backslash 15-minute history, that's one five-minute history, and click on the Contact Us link in the right sidebar. The opinions and views expressed in today's episode are not representative of the University of Texas at Austin or any of its constituent bodies and are solely those of the people who spoke them.